the Dementia Researcher podcast, talking careers, research, conference highlights, and so much more. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dementia Researcher podcast. I'm your host, Adam Smith, and I'm thrilled to have you join us for today's discussion, which we've titled The Recruitment Puzzle. Recruiting participants for dementia research studies is often a complex and nuanced endeavour. From ethical considerations to logistical hurdles, researchers face numerous challenges that can significantly impede the progress of valuable studies. Not only costing money, but also meaning that studies sometimes don't get the numbers of people they need to ensure they're valid uh, or at best are delayed, which means we often don't get to benefit from the results as quickly as we should. Our guests today come from diverse backgrounds and specialisations, but they all share a dedication to advancing our understanding and treatment of dementia. They've all faced the challenges of study recruitment, and so they're going to share their top tips and provide insights that could be game changers for new and seasoned researchers alike. Study recruitment is a challenge I've personally worked on for a number of years, so I'm delighted to be joined by these three researchers who will shed light on their own barriers and discuss how they've navigated the challenges in their own work. So whether you're a PhD student, clinical researcher, or working in any other area that needs the involvement of people with lived experience, this show is for you. So let's meet our guests. It's my pleasure to introduce Elise Parkinson, Dr. Anna Volkmer, and Dr. Megan Rose Reedman. Hello. They've, what, what you didn't hear or see if you're watching or listening is that they've just had to sit through me reading that introduction about four times to get it right. And, and they, um, you could see them reading along my script as I did it, <laughs> willing me on to succeed. So thank you all for bearing with me. Um, why don't you all introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about yourselves? Elise, why don't you go first? So I'm Elise Parkinson. I'm a fourth year PhD researcher, but also a research associate at the University of East Anglia. And my research interests are hydration care of people living with dementia. And if you're a few episodes behind, what you do need to do is, of course, jump back a couple of episodes ago to catch up on Elise's brilliant podcast she did with us, hosted by our other guest, Anna, that uh, talks about their work on hydration. Thank you very much for joining us, Elise. Uh, Anna, why don't you go next? Thank you so much, Adam. So, um, hi everybody. My name is Anna Volkmer. I'm a senior research fellow at University College London and a speech and language therapist. Um, I'm actually an NIHR-funded advanced fellowship holder, which I um, should mention. And my research focus focuses on interventions for people mainly with language-led speech, language and communication difficulties in dementia. And of course, Anna is one of our regular bloggers. Uh, so if you'd like to know more about not only about her work, but, but Anna's blogged for us for a number of years now and has done a, an amazing job at documenting her career journey from from probably about your first year or second year of your PhD through the PhD years, through that first postdoc, through the Viva during the pandemic, right up to, to now and is an inspirational figure in her in her field so do go ahead and have a look at uh, some of anna's blogs there'll be a link to her bio and uh, some of the stuff she's written for us in the show notes and last but not least is the incredible dr megan uh, rose reed hello megan hello thank you so much adam so hi i'm megan i'm a postdoc research fellow at the university of liverpool um and i'm funded by the NIHR, but also the Alzheimer's Society. 
Um, so my kind of research interest lies in the relationship between hearing loss and um, Lewy pathology dementias, so Parkinson's dementia and dementia with Lewy bodies. So thank you. <laughs> I can't help but feel that all your work is so interconnected between the, the swallowing and hydration and language and then your work on hearing as well, because if you don't hear right, you don't communicate properly. It's... Right, we, we could do a separate show just on your research topics alone. Um, but thank you very much, all of you, for joining us today. We'll stick with recruitment for now. Let's get through this. Well, this is such a big topic, and there are so many different ways we could approach it. But what I thought I'd like to do is maybe start by talking about why recruitment is difficult. Because in the UK alone, we know we have uh, 800... I don't know what the latest stat is. Is it 850,000 or is it a million? We said 850,000 for a very long time. And I feel like the the latest figure is a million if you want to go to the charity, quote the charities. But there's a million people living with dementia in, just in the UK alone. And, uh, of course, around 100,000 new people diagnosed each year. So you would imagine that's a lot of people to participate in research studies. Yet we know from joint dementia research, one of the services in the UK, that less than 1% of people living with dementia were signed up for their register. So it, it what you would think might be easy clearly isn't so let's first of all just talk about what we think some of the barriers are um why don't people want to participate in research anna why why don't they <laughs> it's, it's a great question clinically i work in a diagnostic center and i have to say i think when people are being diagnosed they've got so much on their plate uh, you know often that's the first point we say blah blah, blah you've got dementia you know Here's a bit of speech therapy, maybe OT or blah, blah, blah. Oh, and research. And people say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Actually, do you know what? I need to take one thing at a time. So I think actually, you know, sometimes we bombard people with uh, research and it doesn't necessarily mean they want to sign up. And, and the other thing I personally have found is that perhaps people are particularly interested in signing up for research focused on a cure but maybe the idea of searching or signing up for research that isn't focused on cure on that maybe on care more is is a bit trickier um and then of course i should say one more thing and that is that i have particularly found people don't want to sign up because perhaps they've got so many other things going on in their life they're juggling you know these are adults who've got lots of things to do often that it, they they don't necessarily have the, even if they want to time can be it can be tricky i remember so i i should say one of the reasons why i know so much about this topic is because one of the first things i worked on when i joined ucl and the nhr was was on addressing this exact question about study recruitment problems and we created something called joint dementia research which is a register and in, in in doing that we had lots of conversations to understand why people don't sign up and what they did and there was a lot of discussion at that time about at what point should you have a conversation about research uh, and so many views that it should you know should this be as early on as possible at the point of diagnosis and or should it be later or and one of the problems, of course, is, is that post-diagnosis, people don't, it's not like they're coming back to hospital for regular 
visits and follow-ups. The dementia care pathway in the UK is a discharge post-diagnostic back into the care of, of your GP until things get worse or until things change. So it's not like there are many other touch points with healthcare specifically about your dementia to to move that conversation to. So I can see that. What, what about from your perspective, Megan? I think one thing that I've picked up on is a lot of individuals, particularly like young onset, have a bit of difficulty coming to terms with the diagnosis in the first instance. So, you know, if like you're saying, like what Anna was saying, that you're giving a diagnosis and throwing research straight at that time. Sometimes I've noticed in the people I've worked with, they've wanted to take a hot second to actually process what has just been told, like what they've just been through before being like, okay, now I'm ready. I accept what I'm going through. Now I'll consider research. I think that's one of the biggest things I've noticed, particularly in, you know, more like young onset or people who weren't necessarily, you know, it was a bit of a curveball when they found out. Do you, do you think also as well it's something at that time anyway, it's maybe slightly changing now, but also as well the nature of the research that was taking place? Because because we'll always you can't talk about this and not talk about cancer, where where clinical trials aren't almost thought of as a of a separate study to recruit to. They're part of the care pathway. You know, it's when you're offered a treatment, it's like, would you like this mainstream treatment or would you like this experimental treatment? Not as a, you know, fine, it's a clinical trial, uh, but it's not even presented like it's a separate trial. It's like these are your op- participants in this trial or getting this treatment are your options. I suppose we haven't had the luxury in dementia in the past to say, would you like the regular treatment or the experimental treatment? But th- of course, that might be changing now. Uh, well, it won't change because we haven't got a regular treatment right now, have we? We've got the, would you like the chlorestinase inhibitor? And if you're lucky, the, the you know, the behavioral CBT or something like that, whatever else you're offered. But that, I guess that could be one of the reasons why not treated in the same way. Um, Elise? It's interesting listening to that because I don't think it's like a one-size-fits-all answer. So in Huntington's disease... Um, when someone is diagnosed with Huntington's disease, so it's genetic, um, people, there's like the familiar, familial inheritance with the Huntington genes. So generally families are aware of this and kind of um, generations go by and, and they're something that the family are, are well aware of. Um, and in the care for people living with Huntington's disease, they are seen in clinic, mostly, not everyone, some people may choose not to, mostly once a year. So there is that follow up. And so I'm listening to you all with kind of, maybe that's the missing link. Maybe that is a missing link because in Huntington's, there's quite a lot of um, investment from the Huntington's disease community in research. It's, it is a big part of that community. Um, whether or not that's because Huntington's is specific in the fact that they've already identified the genes, so they know kind of there's the, kind of there's the problem. Let's let's work on it. Whereas obviously with hundreds of dementias, there's we're still trying to understand that, aren't we? Um, so what I'm, a very long-winded way of saying is actually there is for that specific type of dementia there is an, a want from the community to mostly take part in in research i think maybe as well we need to think differently between the difference between clinical research drug trials and some of the kind of qualitative research that takes place because i I suppose in huntington's 
for example, I guess somebody with Huntington's would usually be diagnosed in a neurology service of which there are own there are now specialist centres for neurology, aren't there? There, there are fewer neurology specialist centres than there are the 200 memory clinics that are... Both. So neurology and um, neuropsychiatry. So I was based in a mental health hospital um, and that was where we saw um, people with their diagnoses. I, I know from talking... To, so your average memory clinic, so each... It, this is talking specifically about the UK. So if you're listening overseas, we'll try and broaden this out to make sure it's relevant to you as well. But in the NH, in the National Health Service in the UK, um, the traditional kind of pathway for dementia diagnosis is you have mental health trusts. They have community mental health teams and specialist memory services. Each trust might have three, four, five, six of these services that cover the region that they are they're there. GPs will refer to one of them, um, and there are about 200 of these services across the UK. Um, people turn up, they do their their tests, and they have maybe one to three visits. There may or may not be a scan. There may or may not be some further testing. Um, there'd probably usually been some testing before they get referred there to discount other potential neurological problems, um, and that's where research is often discussed at that point there but of course the people working there might not be aware of the research that's going on in their trust or at best they'll only be aware of the research that's going on in their trust they might not even be aware of the research that's going on across all of their trust but just the bit of their trust that they're involved with or the people they work for maybe um so you can see how that's a barrier as well. If the people who are doing have the interaction with, with the people don't even know there's a study going on, of course that's going to be an issue, isn't it? And how how likely is it, Anna, that researchers have direct interaction with patients during that care pathway to... Well, it's a really good question. I have to say, I think um, we're still with health professional, and I am a health professional as a speech and language therapist, I think we take a really paternalistic view to um, uh, when we're working with dementia clients. You know, people living with dementia, we often think we're much more worried about them being vulnerable, maybe lacking capacity, maybe it not being the right time, maybe that they've got too much on their plate. So we often gatekeep, I think professionals will gatekeep, even if they know about stuff. So I think there's this, that that's like almost an initial boundary. Or we think, oh, you know, English isn't their first language or, oh, there's something that we do where we think, oh, they're not, this isn't a good option. I'm not even going to I'm not even going to um, burden them with this decision. So we're already taking a paternalistic view. And then there's that second layer, which is like you say, I don't think we're that used to because there's not been lots of um kind of trials in dementia then we're not used to offering this type of research so i um i suspect that you know when we're offering research, if we were offering research that was trial based like like the you know the cancer stuff to people with capacity we might find that that it would be a more fluent pathway but we're offering people often things that are kind of like you say, qualitative, we want to hear about your opinions and your experiences that or we might be offering them something slightly more investigative, where they, we put them through this rigorous, you know, bat, you know, battery of assessments and 
and make them sit in an MRI machine for hours and and that doesn't sound particularly inviting. Not very attractive, is it? Well, so I wrote out, uh, before we started, I wrote out what I thought was a bit of a long list. And tell me if you think I've missed anything. I think we've touched on all of these, actually. But tell me if you think I've missed anything. So lack of awareness. I guess, yeah. you know, you don't know what you don't know. And if you turn up, get your diagnosis, if nobody mentions it to you, I know from talking to some previous guests like uh, Chris Roberts and others, the only way they ever found out is because they went home and started to Google. Uh, and, you know, that's what they've, that's what I found. So a lack of awareness. People genuinely might be nervous or worried. There is still this kind of, I think it's improving, but there is still this fear of being treated a bit like some kind of lab rabbit that you're a guinea pig. That's the word I'm looking for, lab rabbit. Guinea pig that you don't want experiments done to you. And maybe a misconception that all research trials are drug studies. And whilst, and I think they're very, there's a, you know, there's a, People are one way or other. They're either people sign up and say, "Show me the, give me the drugs. I want the drug studies because they believe that's what will really help them," or people are scared and don't want drug studies, but they'd be happy to chat about their experiences. So, um, nervous or worried about the research? Too much trouble. I mean, I, I agree with this. I, I think if your um, dementia has progressed by the time you, you know, even getting out of the house going to the supermarket, doing day-to-day normal activities is tricky, let alone then trying to make multiple special visits to a local hospital, going through invasive procedures. I can see that being something you'd be wary of. And so you might never go to research at all. Uh, so that's about the kind of too much trouble. Study activity might be too hard, you know, they too, they want too much. There's 10 visits over two years or, or you know, lots of things you have to do. Gatekeepers, I think we touched on there as well, didn't we? So I, I so one of my other projects has been on care home research. And I remember then often we talked about the care homes actually didn't want their residents to participate in studies because it was just too much trouble. You know, they just wanted everybody to nicely have a routine. And and when you started to mix up that routine by saying, right, we, we're going to have a nurse come into the hospital, it also felt they were a bit nervous about inviting external people who might judge them in some way. So care homes often were barriers, clinicians themselves, because if it's not a trial they're doing, why would I go to the trouble of promoting a trial for somebody else? Sorry, Anna, you were going to add to that. I want to add ethics boards. Well, I, I've got it on my, I haven't got it on this list. You're right. Let me get through this and you can come sorry, back to that. Sorry. No, no, no. You're absolutely right, though. Um, and of course, PhD students. So if you're a qualitative PhD student, so say Elise, and you're, um, if you'd done your hydration project as a University of East Anglia PhD student based in the university, you just wouldn't have any day-to-day interaction with recruit people, would you? So when recruitment starts, it's like, okay, now I've got to go find people. I'm not, I'm not situated in a place or have interaction with people, so I've got to go find them. That's exactly um, what happened. <laughs> yeah. um, I think also as well, we're a bit over-reliant on digital technologies. I think we've all just become a bit of a used to, oh, I'm going to tweet this and wait for replies or... Um, I think we've moved away from good old, there's, some, there's a place for good old fashioned newsletters and snail mail and posters. I'm going to say that Elisa's done some amazing posters for hydration recently. <laughs> Language barriers, as I think Anna touched on as well. I mean, we constantly um, highlight the fact that we have a 
terrible lack of diversity in our research study recruitment and we keep saying we'll do something about it and then we keep doing everything in English and trying to recruit in the same way. So language barriers. And then increasingly this need for very specific people, which I think is also, if you're looking for somebody who's very specific or, for example, doesn't even have symptoms yet because your trial is on prevention or diet or exercise um, uh, in somebody who's at high risk of dementia, they're probably not even interacting with healthcare. How do you find them? And in the, in the States or in other countries, fine. you can advertise, you can put TV adverts on there. We, in the UK, we don't have television adverts for clinical trials. We don't have radio adverts or posters on buses to say, come and do this trial. Um, maybe we should. That, you know, maybe, but ethics might be an issue for that. Anna, what, what you were going to add to our list. <laughs> Sorry, I came in vigorously with ethics, didn't I? I've had these experiences. I, I do a lot of video recording, even in intervention trials. And, um, and we, I do it in almost all the studies I do, videoing people. And ethics boards are very, they're always horrified. You couldn't possibly video somebody with dementia. How horrific. And then that results in a very long discussion. Or the other side of the coin I often have, because I'm working with people with speech, language, language and communication difficulties, it's a bit like going back to those language barriers, is they say, well, people can't possibly understand what you want them to do. Um, and I think that happens at, at the ethics board stage, but also happens at the, probably at many stages. In fact, I think a lot of people get excluded from studies if they, you know, just in case they can't, you know, they have a speech, language or communication difficulty. So consent, I wanted to add consent to that list um, because that can be a real barrier. So my next question in this list was what are the common misconceptions or fears that potential participants have? But I can't help but think that we've actually already kind of answered that that question. So what I will look at, uh, will ask, and I'm going to come to you, Elise, how does recruitment differ when you're looking for people living with dementia or carers or care home residents or people at risk of dementia? How How does it differ depending on those different people you're looking for? It's such a big question. I think it comes to where you, I don't know if look is the right word, but where you look for those people. So um, going back to the ethics thing, I um, had pushback from the Research Ethics Committee about my care home ethnography. And even though I use a lot of public partner involvement in designing my care home ethnography, and they said, well, why didn't you get res residents with dementia for your public partner involvement, designing the study. At the time it was during COVID, it was so difficult, it comes back to that gatekeeper access. It was so difficult to even get access into a care home, let alone get it for PPI. I, I could barely get it for my actual study. So it comes back to where you're looking for people. So I've um, used the Alzheimer's Research um, Network um, previously for public partner involvement. Um, they were amazing. That's the um, Alzheimer's Society one sorry outside yeah. society research no, network um and but that was um family caregivers so even though i put the advert out to anyone who's been affected by dementia and, and people can be affected in lots of different ways it was family caregivers who came forward for that i've um opened up public partner involvement for other things and it's always been people who have not had dementia themselves now that's my problem isn't it that i'm not finding those people. So Twitter adverts, 
may may or may not be working and although i did have people who had a diagnosis of dementia interested in that in terms of following that up maybe my workshops weren't accessible enough having so said that can i interrupt you and ask you a question there though is at the point when you were study design because i've i've spoken to a lot of people over the years who've been telling me the study they're going to do and then they've told me how many people they're looking for and where they're going to get them from and i've immediately gone really you you think wow you that's that's a high number and you're going to get those in six months Re- oh wow well good luck with that and i couldn't help but think wh- who gave who gave that advice that that was going to be feasible because so where did you where do you get your number i mean i I can understand you've got what you think is the right number to power your study or what would be a good number, but who gives you advice on on recruitment? So once again, it comes to that quantitative versus qualitative, doesn't it? Because in qualitative, we don't really worry as much about numbers, but still kind of the ethics boards, they still like even a qualitative protocol. They still want you to tell them how many people you're going to recruit. And so I ended up for my care home ethnography, I had five care home residents who each had a diagnosis of dementia involved in my ethnography and then 17 staff in in varying roles that was incredible that was amazing because there was a point certainly within the first couple of months i thought i'm probably not gonna have any participants so did you decide on that number no, and, uh, I didn't decide on a number. I fed the wreck a number that, which, okay. which looked lovely, which is probably about 20 And they people. said, okay. What about, what about you, Megan? How, how do you come up with the numbers when you come into recruitment? Where do you get your ad- – do you get it's any very, advice? Yeah, it's very much what Elise said. Um, so sort of coming more from a quant background, it's power analyses galore, like G-power, statistics, hardcore. Um, but for my – current sort of interview based i entirely gave everything and relied upon my team people who have been like clarissa specifically i went off what she thought was feasible feasible so getting advice from seasoned researchers who've worked in the field who've said right that's a realistic number this is how long it'll take anna exactly i was just going to add to that so i did a my PhD work was a pilot study, so we didn't know the, what the power, what, how many people we needed for a power calculation. So the other thing we did, which I think maybe is the pre-step, is that we actually said, how many people with dementia do does this clinic get referred? Okay, as in, so I was talking to speech therapists, so I was saying, how many high speech therapists, how many people with dementia do you get in your caseload? Okay, and then there's actually data in the research about previous um, previous uh, speech that I actually looked at speech therapy studies to see how many people were then you know of an average caseload what percentage would they recruit so that's what I, I that's how I made my very pragmatic decision well, that's that, good. but you can see how there's thinking behind that it led in right how many referrals do we yeah. get what percentage of people are likely to say yeah. yes how many can we do each month and so this exactly. is how many we'll get over time and it but it was de- it is dependent then of course if you're doing referral if you're gathering data in a clinical setting on that clinic remaining as it is so for example if uh the unfortunately the staff leave or there's another issue that's out of your control and that clinic somehow doesn't continue recruiting people y- your numbers are dude 
And this is where I think, at least you made the point about the Alzheimer's Society's research network. I think having that, we'll put this plug in, it's essential. Most funders fundamentally require this anyway, which is that patient and public involvement in study design. And that the expertise you'll get from that won't just be that you should change the phrasing of this or the colour of that or the intervention you're planning needs a tweak. They can also... They've got a lot of experience in that network. The people who are going to give you advice are also going to say that's that's a lot of people. That's or you could get more. Or um, I, I think that it's so important to design your study from the outset in a way that's deliverable. Um, I think is important. And of course, your university should have a uh, an, an office, a research design service, an office that will give advice on that. Okay, but. That's enough. We've talked about the problems. We know what the problems are now. We've talked about the barriers. And I think in this next segment, we're going to move on to talk about solutions. Okay, we're back. And we're going to talk about solutions in this section. So how do you initially identify the approach for for potential recruitment? Um, all three of you have recruited to trials recently. Megan, I know you're in the middle of recruitment right now, so I'm going to come to you first. Watch, how do you initially identify uh, how you're going to recruit? I think, so it might not necessarily be the best way, I'm not going to lie. Well, give I us always... an overview. What is it? Let's talk about real life now, unless yeah. you can't. But So what's the study? What, what kind of people are you looking for right now? Um, so I'm currently looking for people living with um, either Parkinson's dementia or dementia with Lewy bodies who also have hearing loss. Right. Or people who care for people who have Parkinson's or Lewy body dementia who has hearing loss. Right. So immediately, like you were saying before, and you're university my based. Is... Yes. You're not yes, in a yes. you're not in a clinical setting, so university based. And yes. what do you need those people to do? Um, it's an interview study, um, so it's just a short interview about their experiences of hearing loss and how it may, you know, be affecting so um, what, their dementia. What did you put in your plan for how you're going to find those people? So I kind of went for a, like a multi-pronged approach, shall we say. Um, so I'm using the Joint Dementia Research um, platform as one method. Um, I have admittedly done what you have said slightly over relied on technology um like online adverts and things but i think for me personally my most successful line of recruitment is i have spent quite a few years now going to support cafes for people with parkinson's so they know me really well we just have like a general chit chat and we've got rid of all those barriers that you've spoke about before um, so when I go and chat to them and mention the studies straight away, all those barriers don't exist. It's just like two friends. Um, so that has definitely been my most lucrative. So lo local support groups, um, yeah. you mentioned there. Join dementia, so joindementiaresearch.nihr.ac.uk <laughs> is a service free for all UK researchers um, that will allow you to recruit to any ethically approved study, even if you're a PhD student or you're a drug trial. Um, so you can go have a look at that. Um, if you're in the States, um, there's something equivalent, which is called Trial Match. If you're in the Australia, they've got Step Up for Dementia Research. Um, there's one in Ireland as well. Different countries have their versions of this. Uh, but essentially, one of the great things about that is essentially is anybody can sign up to it at any time and say i'm available for research so back to the point earlier about when to talk about research 
or if people go away and Google it, that you can kind of sign up to that later. It takes away that urgency. Um, so that's that's that. Um, social, you said it, the, the digital products as well. So was that was that Twitter, Instagram, Facebook? Um, Twitter, and then some support um, like groups that I'm part of on. Um, and then the face to face groups. Yeah, the, it's by far the face to face is definitely um, the best way because you're you're reaching people that you might not necessarily reach online. Um, and it's, it, it's just, you can get a general feel for the, what's actually going to happen. Um, and it's, it's yeah. so plain sailing then you've, you've got everybody. It's no, <laughs> it's no, no, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. And it is very time consuming, but I do strongly think like that one interview that you do do, makes up for all of the aggro <laughs> um I can but you, i just have to keep trying i'm not gonna okay. stop so we'll, well well let's go around and look at how, the like the most recent yeah. study you've worked on everybody's approaches and then we'll pick up on where we think the gaps were or i'll tell you what as the recruitment ex no i'm not an expert but i can <laughs> at least why don't you come next i think once again it's interesting because of study design so each of these is so different depending on what kind of study you're working on. But my most recent was care home ethnography, in which case I had to have gatekeeper access before I could get in, which relied on me putting an advert out to Norfolk and Suffolk care e-bulletin to see if anyone wanted to host. And also me contacting lots of care homes saying, do you want to host this research? So you had to go to care homes to get their permission to approach their residents? to even yeah i had to then get a site agreement in place with the university and the, the what ended up being a single care home before i could even get to residents and then um, i had posters up in the care home i asked the care home manager to send out information to all the families to make them aware that one i'm going to be in the home anyway but two, if they wanted to take part in the research and I wouldn't be obviously recording their data unless they provided um, consent. I had to go to staff, I didn't have to, I, I chose to go to staff meetings, family meetings, resident meetings to make them aware of my research. I did that before data collection started as just an introduction. I dropped into their um, team meetings um, online as well. And then I had what's called like a hanging out period in ethnographies, it's like a familiarisation period of a few weeks. So people just get to know me, get to know who I am, my faces around the, the care home at this point. And, and then, even after that, then we start having the conversation about giving information sheets out, leaving a pile by staff paperwork and let families have information sheets. And then recruitment could even possibly begin. Do you feel like a bit of a salesperson? I try not. I try not to think of myself. No, are you, is it like is selling it like my stuff or my research? Cam, canvassing for double glazing, or you're trying to sell insurance or something like that. It's like, you know, it it feels a bit like sales, doesn't it? It's a bit like marketing. You've got to market yourself, the value, importance of the study, why and people should do it. Thankfully, as you know, a lot of people do see a lot of importance in hydration care for people with dementia. People do see it. And that was one thing that came up in my public partner involvement work before the study even began. People see this as really crucially needed research. So it was never really the case I didn't have buy-in from people. I had the buy-in. It was more so residents were easier to recruit into the study than staff. It, that was very difficult. And there was kind of like a tiered process. So management 
gave their consent eventually first and then once the rest of the staff kind of gauged okay this might be safe now then kind of the less risky staff got involved so maybe activity staff um domestic staff people maintenance staff people who weren't kind of directly relating to hydration care and then the last kind of buy-in i got was from care staff themselves and that was interesting just in, on its own so there is that element that we come back to what we mentioned before about study design that if your study is something that people will feel is valuable and worthwhile and important it's certainly going to help particularly if you have gatekeepers who might present barriers you know yeah. or, or anybody actually because if you go to a gp or a you know a community center and say i want to come and talk to your residents about this study and they could go well what's the point yeah that's not interesting they're probably less likely to help you than if it's something that they really see as valuable mm-hmm. um anna what, what's your most recent experience um, so I think my most recent experience is kind of built on my initial experiences. So I was describing earlier about the pilot study I did, which is an NHS pilot based pilot study. And I had initially developed a study for my PhD based on three sites, having collected numbers and we made this pragmatic decision and then it didn't happen. So I realized I learned that I had to add sites and I did that through networking uh, I really enjoyed that Elise's comment about like the tiered, you know, networking with people. And actually, I was really networking with speech and language therapists to add sites. And what I'm now doing, my current study, I'm I'm um, coming towards the end of. We're developing a core outcome set for people, um, so to measure outcomes in primary progressive aphasia intervention research. And we've managed to recruit 19 sites around the world. And it's through networking, essentially. And in all of these instances, I really realized very quickly in my PhD work that I needed to sell it a bit, not necessarily to the people, but to the professionals. So what, like, it, we're coming back to what we were actually talking to before we started recording, which is that GPs often in, you know, it's, it, they do a lot of recruiting. It's quite burdensome. I had the same with speech therapists. They were saying it's really burdensome. So I was trading a bit. So I realized actually trading is quite helpful even for professionals. So I was saying, if you recruit people for me, I'll train you up in this therapy. It's really helpful. You can use it. But we're not just with these clients, but with others. I can be a sounding board. And so with the international study, I've been, I had to think in advance, what can I trade? So I traded, um, I actually offered everybody who was involved um, so I had to get all these different sites around the world to um, run focus groups for me, and in in um, and I've offered everyone to be a co-author on the study. So we're going to have a really exciting collaboration. Um, but that really was something that people were really excited about. And I, and I hadn't thought about that because because it's kind of normal. It's more normal in clinic in kind of clinical studies, isn't it, to have multiple sites? It is. That, that are fundamentally, it's one study, but it's multiple sites, and it, it's great if you can afford it because of course, if depending on if your study's eligible for the in the UK, it's the NIHR portfolio, which means they'll cover some of the costs, and you can set up multi-center studies. Um, less so in university research. But again, unless you've got collaborators who want to do that. Megan and Elise, have you ever managed, have you managed to, through networking, get collaborators who will do your work as well elsewhere? 
Yeah, so I was actually really quite fortunate in my PhD. Um, all my PhD work, I con um, collected the data at Preston Royal Hospital in the clinical research facility there. Um, so I was working with people living with Parkinson's and the research nurses within that facility um, actually did all the recruitment for me. So they contacted the people living with Parkinson's. Um, but that was a very fortunate situation and it coincided with the fact that the facility was very new when we went to them and they really wanted to get themselves established and get off the ground yeah. and get up and running. Um, so they were happy to take on the study and like kind of what Anna was saying, the trade-off was I got shipped off to like road shows to <laughs> do like little demos of what the research that is going on at Preston was and talk to people about the facilities at Preston. And there was always this kind of like underlying, um, if we go further in this research, if we apply for grants, we'll put money in for you. And it was kind of like, it, it's like what Anna was saying, there, there had to be something that they were going to get from it almost. Um, so, so again, that's it's important to, again, it's coming back to kind of that design stage, isn't it? That from the outset, if you design that you you could build into your study design, that it's going to be multi-centre, which is great if you're writing a bid specifically for this and it's recruitment. A little bit harder if you're a PhD student and you're given something ready-made project where your funding, your recruitment budget is £500. Um, you know, it, it's not quite the same the same thing. Uh, but multi-center, so multi-center and collaborations are great anyway, because even if, you know, the more people you know who support you and your work, even if it's not a multi-center study, if you're looking for somebody who's going to share it amongst their patients or their community or take it to their dementia cafe locally, or if you're trying to reach carers, the more friends and people you've got, don't don't be shy about just sending an email to those people you met at the conferences and said, hey, we're all in the same boat. If, if I'm getting into this study right now, it's a survey, it's online, anybody could do it, or it's a piece of paper, could you share this for me? I, I don't imagine people would say no. They go, okay, we're all in, we all have to, we all have this struggle. Um, let's, let's move on quickly. Um, innovative methods. So I'm, I'm going to start this uh, to talk about innovative methods you've over, you found to come over recruitment. So my top tip, I'll get one of these in now. If you're looking for people living with dementia or you're looking for carers, don't waste your time with X, formerly known as Twitter, um, or even Instagram. Don't go anywhere near it. It's a waste of you're wasting your time. I mean, by all means, if it's a 30 second job to just do a tweet and then forget about it, then by all means do it. You've got nothing to lose. But if you really want to embrace digital communities, Facebook is the way to go. Facebook, if you go into the groups function on Facebook, Facebook is filled with thousands of groups and there are hundreds and hundreds of them that are dementia specific support groups. And this is, this is, these are, come on some big national ones like there's a, a dementia support group that covers all of india and has thousands of people in it there is also one for a tiny little oxfordshire village down the road from me that's got about 40 people in it and it's called like dementia friendly rossendale or um i know the three nations dementia working group that chris is involved in and things like that they have a facebook group and um, what you find in there is is 
is passionate local people that have been affected by dementia using a platform that they've become familiar with and they feel a bit safe with. I think I have seen statistics that say older people are far more likely to use Facebook than they are other forms of social media. You can join those groups. They're all free. Sometimes you might have to message the administrator to, to kind of show them that you're legit you're not trying to sell something it's not inappropriate but they will often just say okay if you ask first um to to post your poster your banner your information in there and i found that to be so effective when we've promoted the chatathon and things like that in the past so many of people with lived experience came from facebook and nowhere else so my top tip is is facebook um elise what was what's your yeah innovative method mine is another plug for alzheimer's society actually <laughs> which um, is great if you're in the uk i don't know if they do that elsewhere well yes yeah, so the dementia talking point forum is a public discussion forum it's online and anyone can internationally post on there and i um did an analysis as like a third phd study um of kind of the public discourse so did a search on there of um, drinking terms. So drinking, dehydration, tea, coffee, water, whole host of search terms for people living with dementia in care homes, kind of downloaded all the online posts. You're only allowed to do that if you get permission from the um, kind of moderators on there. So I managed to get permission. I got NHS ethical approval as the, the wider drink study anyway, of which that was encompassed, but did like an analysis of the thematic discourse analysis of all of those to triangulate against my care home ethnography. So actually, I would say that that's like a really nice approach. That's data that's already out there of people who have lived experience. These are their real kind of unfiltered, anonymized posts. So Alzheimer's Society's Talking Point Forum. I, I think you do have to have to kind of ask, you do have to ask permission for, you can't just, nobody can just go on there and post any old thing, but, but you, they will yeah, create give a profile. Yeah. Um, Megan. I think, I don't think it's particularly innovative, but doesn't I would... Effective is, nobody cares about innovation. Getting the job done is the main thing. Yeah. I honestly strongly believe in going to support groups, local community. But, but the way that you do it, you don't want to just march in like, this is my study. Just go, take in the atmosphere, the just lovely environments and like become in that atmosphere and make like talk to the people and then slowly but surely you can potentially introduce your research if if it feels appropriate but i really do call me old-fashioned but there's nothing quite like face-to-face i 100 agree when we were talking so in my work over the years one of the things we one of the problems joint dementia research has is that out of those 200 memory clinics we talked about, of course, you'd like every one of those to be referring everybody into joint dementia research, but they don't because they forget they're busy or they don't like it. Well, there are lots of reasons why not. And uh, the top way we found that you could not get over the fact that you just needed to go meet the memory clinic staff, have a chat to them, explain what it was all about. And not just once, you had to go back time and time again. You had to repeat this staff change, things change. And I don't think you can beat that face-to-face interaction particularly in this this community you going as as megan the nice the nice young doctor from the university whose cares she's 
passionate, you want to do your work and you can stand there and explain why it's important and what you want, I think is is compelling, far more compelling than a than a flyer, to be quite honest. I, I really think one word you just said that really sums it up nicely, Adam, is it's passion. When you go and you talk to people and they see how very passionate you are about your research, then all the things that you were saying before, they won't feel like a guinea pig no. or a lab rat or whatever because they see your passion and understand your story as well a bit. It just gets rid of this whole power. And do you know what? You can do thing. that. So you can bring that digital together because mm. if you really do, if you kind of really don't have the time, you can't go out on the face-to-face, -face, what you can do is... Pick up your, um, for the sake of those on audio, I'm picking up my mobile phone now, and I'm going to look at it and go, you can sit there and record yourself talking into your phone for three minutes and what you're going to post onto YouTube, onto YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook even, isn't a two-paragraph summary. It's a little video of you talking about why you want people important. That is going to get you far more success than you copying and pasting something that you've put in your ethics form into a Facebook post is a video. Video yourself doing it because people will watch that and go, oh, yeah, I think that's my theory. Anna, thank you, Megan. Um, I think you can also do the same for consent forms. You can do video recorded consent forms now. And I think what I what, something I've really noticed people value in the trials that I I've done is the accessible consent forms themselves. So people, so you know, making a consent form but using images or um, checking the the kind of language you're using to make it sure that you don't need you know a PhD to understand it is actually something I think that gets very forgotten. Um, and it's really, really, you know, it comes back to that advertising. You know, if, if at the very point of advertisement, can you make it accessible? Then you're going to get more uptake because people understand what you're asking from them and that kind of links in with the passion they're not going to say yes if they don't understand what you're asking from them um, but I also agree with that idea of you know it's not only being making it accessible for the people with, living with dementia and their family members but also for the health professionals because you know health professionals in every country in the world are overburdened and I think they're also not they forget but and they're also I think making the decision about whether somebody is eligible for a trial is can often be another. Do they really fit the criteria? And actually, I think we can often help by doing things like offering to come and go through their caseload and check which ones are, which people yeah. will be eligible. I've really that's been a massive advantage in my study is actually saying, come on, I'll come to you, but I'll also come to you and go through and let's talk about the eligibility criteria. I mean, if you can afford it, um, I guess there is the option because GPs can write to people. They have yeah. automated electronic systems for doing this, certainly in the UK, and they can write to anybody as their patients, I think, if you've got ethically approved. So if you can find a way to connect with your local, is it LMC, your local medical committees and things like that that GPs are involved with and partnering up, that they could potentially write to patients for you. They might, they might pass the cost on to you so if your study can involve it but again if you can build that into your project costs people like a good old-fashioned letter in in so our most successful ever promotion of joint dementia research was with lancashire care trust 
And um, there were two things that they did that got them to something like 25% of everybody signed up, which is they they gave everybody an application form in the memory clinic, um, even if they hadn't yet had their diagnosis, but a piece of paper, a form you can fill in. People are quite good at filling in forms. If you give them a form in amongst lots of other forms and say, fill in that form, people would fill that in and then collect it back. Don't wait for people to post it themselves. Take it back and post it for them. And then following up with a letter within three months to say, here's what we're looking for. This is people sign up to that. And between the combination of the letter and the the form, they got the best sign up rates in the country. Um, so old fashioned snail snail mail um, is a good one as well. I did have a we, we've spent quite a long time already looking at the looking at the clock as ever with my podcast. They're never short. Um, I did have a whole section in here on the role that ethics committees play in shaping recruitment strategy. Um, I I know members on ethics committees that would say, I think there's. There's good, bad and ugly in amongst ethics committees. I'm going to be honest. I think sometimes they can be remarkable and give you true advice that is incredibly helpful that you wouldn't have thought of. Other times I've come across them and they're incredibly finickety. That's that's a UK word. Anybody listening outside? Finickety. Finicky. Oh, I can't even say it again now. Finicky. Um where they'll pick you up on slightest little word changes, just because it almost feels like they feel the need to make some change, even though it's not going to add value just because because we wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't make you change something. I apologise to ethics committees everywhere for, for saying that. That's just my personal view. Um, but it feels like that sometimes. And then other times, they, they've kind of completely said, oh, you can't do something, and discuss a lack of understanding. What... What I mean, you've all got your own personal experiences. Um, I, this, I was going to say hands up if it's been good and hands down if it's been bad, but that won't work for audio, <laughs> only the video version. Anna, just say good or bad. In the middle. <laughs> Megan? I'd say in the middle too. Elise? For my ethnography, it was... It was- it was different. Oh yes, I was. Do, anyway, I was going to wait for somebody to to actually come out and be honest. <laughs> it, was, it was hard. Um, can anybody give me an example of some? Give me one example of something where they've genuinely given you advice that was helpful, and then one that was just completely unhelpful. Can I give um, the unhelpful? Yeah, go on, Elise. So. <laughs> An ethnography, one was the wording, so they specifically wanted me to use the word dementia in all of my recruitment materials, and that was one thing that was so strongly opposed in all of the public partner engagement. So I stood firm on that and pushed back. But an ethnography is supposed to be observing people in a naturalistic environment, so you are not supposed to be experimental in any way. Um, the rec were, um, the research ethics committee members were really concerned that my presence was going to really um, have a negative impact on the care home and that they were concerned that I was going to be recording information of people who did not give consent. So they proposed a solution that half of my care home would be segmented, not my care home, the care home, would be segmented off to consenting people and the other half would be segmented off to non-consenting people. So there's like moral implications here. I would suggest ethical implications, but on a study design basis, 
that is an experiment. That is not an ethnography. No. Um, that was the biggest... And impractical. You'd have never recruited to that when, when it came to actually doing it. it. It's totally, for me, totally unethical. You, you cannot ask people for when you're... Or, the, the reason I chose an ethnography is to try and be as least burdensome. On I specifically wanted people living with dementia who may or may not have the mental capacity to provide informed consent. I didn't want there to be restrictions on who could be involved in the study. So an ethnography is quite unburdensome that I just sit in a corner and don't have an impact on anyone. If I'm going in, tearing up the care home, you over there, you over there, that is so unethical. I can understand that. Um, Anna, Megan, good good tips you've had from ethics committees? I, mine, I would actually say I was invited to bring a PPI participant to the um, ethics meeting. And that was probably a good tip because um, I was able to, you know, that it's quite has... hard to argue with somebody who sit there with lived exactly. experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that was I it. Really. Yeah. Megan. Oh, I don't think I have anything. As Nothing positive. As just no, said. that's entirely, it's, it's entirely reasonable. <laughs> I think the important thing here is, is to plan ahead as well. I mean, it, you know, if you can talk to colleagues and if they're willing to share their ethics applications to see, you know, talk to them about what their experience is, particularly with an individual ethics and ethics panel, approach them in advance to to ask if, you know, they, they you can approach them in advance. They might not answer your questions, but you can go ask and say, hey, I'm going to be doing this. Do you have any, you know, particular tips? You could approach the chair and ask for any recommendations, what they've seen. Um, you can have a look at, um, are these all published and available? You can see ethics approvals that they've previously given to get any sense of what they've done so getting it through first time um but they are supposed to be there to help so i mean also ask their advice um and you know i don't think it's all an ethic ethics is an important role to play and it, it it is there for a good reason um i had a whole section on dropout rates but i don't think we can have a lot of time to talk about this now to be honest um but Dropout rate's an issue. I mean, there's nothing more frustrating than recruiting all your people in and then having to start all over again because, I mean, we all experienced that during COVID when things had to change. We're not going to talk about COVID. Let's not talk about the pandemic. But how do you address any top tips on addressing dropouts? I mean, I guess with your interviews, it's less of an issue because it's so quick after, but follow-ups and things like that can be different. What about you, Anna? You've probably had the... I, do you know what? Other than COVID, I've never had any dropouts. <laughs> <laughs> Very lucky for you. I guess it's different for the longitudinal, for the longitudinal studies well, and clinical drug trials and things like well, that. Uh, well, I, I would say the studies that I've done, of all um, the biggest, longest study I did involved people for about eight weeks and people didn't drop out. And all, all the... Months. Go on, Elise. So for enrolled Huntington's disease observational studies, that's longitudinal, that just carries on and on and on. It's been going for years. We used to, at Birmingham, we used to always give out biannual newsletters to keep people like very aware. So literally mailing out newsletters so people are aware of what we're doing, touch base, because like I said, they have the annual clinic visit, but also we would do an annual follow-up research visit. But also we would put on a research party. So once a year, put on a free party for participants to come, have fun, everything was catered for, and just as a big thank you to them for, for their involvement in research. But Huntington's Disease Association were also really involved with the site, and they were amazing. So I think lots of different ways of connecting the community to the research. 
Yeah, that every time you read on this topic, that's the top tip that comes through is remaining connected, staying relevant, keeping in touch with people, picking up the phone, birthday cards. I've heard of people sending, you know, cards, seasonal cards, Christmas cards to people, research updates, video updates, inviting people to regular meetings, sharing progress. All of those help you keep in touch with the people, don't they? Um, and also as well, even in your short six-week things, I think listening to people is so important because if the intervention you're planning is too hard to undertake listening to people so that you can if you can you can adapt um and improve the study maybe for the next cohort or on even even change the ethics change the intervention if you need to 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 it's better to get it right than to have a study that goes through where everybody says no it was no good Anna's nodding for those who are listening and not watching. Um, I, do you know what? This, this, I'm afraid this is probably all we've got time for, but um, we're going to have a, a couple of last recap and top tips before we finish. Okay, so before we finish, we're going to have one more question and I'm going to try and recap on what we've taken away. So everybody agrees recruiting, recruiting to studies is tricky no matter where in the world you are no matter what type of research it is whether this is a drug trial or whether it's a small qualitative study that needs five people that it can be a challenge uh, as well we know that some of the barriers we talked about those extensively at the start of the show we know the reasons why but when you need to try and recruit people there are some hopefully some top tips in there you can do which is because there are still digital methods face to face getting in front of people and talking to them reaching out to their communities collaborating finding partners to work with whether that's charities institutions your local dementia cafes age uk networks or um different different places where older people with these you know that you're looking for to participate in your studies or not necessarily older people if it's prevention trials younger people but go to wherever those people are and use the methods they're using to communicate to, to, to try and encourage them be passionate about your work make sure your study is designed well from the outset that you've you've thought hard about how many people you need what you need them to do whether it's appealing for them and how if not how you can make it appealing bring other people on board to help you with delivering that study as well and um i don't know is there anything else i've missed i miss things anna I was just thinking about underserved communities. I think that's probably something we haven't discussed. We haven't. You're today. absolutely right. And actually, I think that's something I'm trying to do a bit more now. So reaching out to local um, uh, church communities or um, kind of cultural communities just to make uh, connections with them so that they could perhaps reach people who I might not be able to reach as a white female speech and language researcher. Um, I think that's something I've been thinking a lot more about and but doing that with a smile on my face and passionately and accessibly but yeah I, I thought I'd just mention that before I absolutely thought. so I I can't remember one of the conferences I've been to recently that that awful term that's so often used is this hard to reach communities and you constantly push back saying there are no hard to reach communities you're just not doing a good enough job at reaching them and and I think that's an important topic. We could do it in. I think we should do an entire separate podcast on how to how to reach people who traditionally don't have access to research, aren't talked to. But again, it comes back to every time I've when you hear and listen to people who've been successful at that. Every time you've it, it comes down to that. 
relationships, face-to-face contact. Don't be afraid to to go to the places where those um, people are living to talk, um, talk to the community leaders, talk in the uh, the places there to to meet people. Um, because if you're sitting on the outside sending letters or, or messaging at them or asking somebody to do something for you, it's not going to work. Um, you've just got to go and, and talk to people, I think. And also as well, I think if you can bring people on board to support you in that work, it's important because people like to see somebody like them who is involved in the research. So as you mentioned, being a you know a kind of middle-class white woman, uh, it helps if the person that's talking to them about the research, you know, is is looks and is from that community as well that same place so if you have the opportunity to bring on partners and help help others um to to get involved in your studies do it that that's the way to to get involved and i think also set some set some expectations i mean go out there from the outset don't just say oh we'll try or we're looking for this many people actually write down we will find this many people from this you know from this community or from the muslim community or from the you know the kind of uh, south asian community actually set yourself a target for how many people you're going to do because if you don't if you just drift into it and going oh well we tried and we maybe found one person actually be ambitious and and make it a point to do it plan to do it from the outset don't make it an afterthought um does anybody else? I don't know. Do you? I do you agree? Yeah, no, I <laughs> do. Because just not everybody watches on video. <laughs> we haven't um, also covered kind of the role of a, an advisory group. So although we have like public partner kind of involvement, the role of an advisory group kind of can serve that role in a way and meet people halfway. If you have a a great diverse advisory group for your study or um, co-applicants for the study from the offset, that's already the relationships to communities are already. Uh, there and we, yeah. we really should be seeing that more often absolutely and there's no, there's nothing to stop you doing that i mean anybody can do that a phd student you can set you could set up an advisory group anytime i'm fine you might need to check with your supervisor they agree but get an advisory group together and draw on the communities to bring those people because they'll give you advice from the outset and they'll help the part of us to be part of that study team doing that job right very last question i think that's enough recapping we're definitely an hour now <laughs> um so if some for those who are listening to this who are fairly new PhDs so there'll be some people out there who are fresh out of undergrad maybe just done a master's now doing their PhD for the first time they're on a dementia study they care about dementia the only person with dementia they've ever met is like their uh, their granddad or maybe a neighbor have never actually face-to-face interacted with somebody living with dementia what I could see that being quite nerve-wracking. You know, you've watched a lot of YouTube tutorials, you've watched Alzheimer's Society and ARUK's new videos, and you know what to expect, but what's it like face-to-face for the first time? So I'm going to go to um, Megan, first of all. What advice would you have for a new PhD student that finds themselves having to talk to somebody living with dementia and their carer for the first time, um... And and you're going in there with a message you want you want them to do your research, but how do you approach that with that person? I think the first thing is to acknowledge it's okay to be 
nervous the first time. I know the first time that I ever, from like a research perspective, spoke to anybody living with dementia or living with Parkinson's. I was petrified, absolutely petrified that I was going to say something wrong, do something wrong. The first thing is like acknowledge that it's okay that you're a little bit nervous and not, and your nerves just mean it it matters to you that you want to do well sort of thing like it's not wrong to be nervous um and i guess the top tip would be try not to sort of like overthink it and be too prescriptive and formal like don't have a script and just come and be like my name is blah 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 this is my study like just be natural don't have your script just go in there sort of engage in just a normal conversation don't go with your like cue cards would be yeah, I think empathy is important there isn't it yeah. I've met so I mean and no one person is the same I think I've met so many people we had somebody on the podcast recently who acknowledged that they didn't always speak as concisely as they would liked but they also made the point that they didn't we could edit that we could make them you know in the editing of that podcast we could make them clearly understood and edit out the silences, edit out the mistakes and the misspeaking, but they asked us specifically not to. Um, and, and so we left them in. And I think that's, for other people, they wouldn't have taken that approach though. They'd have said, oh God, I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound like I don't know what I'm talking about. Can you can you fix all that? And I think having having those conversations, treating each person like an individual and being honest, having an honest conversation about some of those things is important because not everybody would like you to edit them and some people absolutely would want you to. Anna? As a speech and language therapist, <laughs> I would say that there's, there is actually research on what to do. And at, there's a, one of my colleagues, it's very straightforward. She was doing a, a big piece of work and the majority of people just want you to smile at them. So you meet somebody and you smile. And it's often the thing, even if you look at all the top tips on how to communicate with people with dementia, smiling is often not on that list um so smile i think is a really important point is that, that is, is so cool i absolutely do you know what and that's my default usually because it's my nervous face me too <laughs> <laughs> smile. absolutely my default i think i've been like that since i was 12 and now i realize it's a great advantage i thought i was just a bit over enthusiastic in life but now i realize it's really <laughs> helpful and it is what people are say they want they want you to smile but then i guess i would say smile and then speak plainly don't use technical language at all if you can help it and i think ask you know asking questions as well not assuming um yeah. i think is important as well if you ask absolutely um and yeah. check check that they you know and part of asking questions can be giving people the opportunity saying do am i making sense are you following me which bit did you not follow the active listening i think also i mean quite often some people living with this in real life i mean don't be afraid to talk a little bit about the real the realities of living with dementia they you know i think they quite like the idea that you really understand the realities absolutely um elise I would just echo everything that everyone said, although I would say the mask wearing in care homes and trying to smile, very difficult, very, very difficult. Um, but I would say just treat them like human beings. I think we put this label of dementia on, which can make 
things look very scary sometimes and actually we don't need to we just need to treat people like human beings what i did also find is wearing a kind of yellow name badge saying hello i'm a researcher elise was quite useful particularly in the care for me to just point to if if there was like hearing impairment or communication difficulties for me to just remind people of that but i naturally talk with my hands i do a lot of gesturing body language cues you can pick up on so anna you touched on just thinking but what elise mentioned there you mentioned that there's beach trees. Is there something? Could you? Is there something somebody should go away and read? Is there some from the the better conversations work and the things you've had? Is there some guide to this that exists online somewhere that people could go away and? There, there is actually a guide that we co-produced with people with um, language, dif- speech, language, and communication difficulties with dementia, and and we actually co-produced it with them and people with stroke aphasia, and it was the same top tips. And it's on the Royal College Speech and Language Therapy website, RCSLT website. It's top tips on pe- communicating with people. And Smile was at the top. That is a perfect list. And I think a perfect way to end today's podcast. Um, I'd like to thank our incredible guests, Dr. Anna Volkmer, uh, Elise Parkinson and Dr. Megan Rose Reedman. Uh, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. You'll find uh, more top tips and any links that we've mentioned in the show on the website or in the show notes to go with this podcast. There you'll also find a full transcript if you're listening to this um, You'll find a full transcript of the text there as well. Uh, And in YouTube, you'll find that we have captions available and biographies, as I said, on all of our guests where you can read more about their work, links to Anna's brilliant blogs, to read more about Megan's uh, work up there in Liverpool. Uh, Megan's going to be presenting at a conference in Liverpool as well in a couple of weeks' time. And we're going to record some of that as well, I believe, which we'll put onto our YouTube channel. Uh, Elise has already been in an amazing podcast talking about her work on hydration as well, uh, which is our top podcast of the year so far so if you haven't listened to that yet do go away and have a listen in your favorite podcast app or on our youtube channel thank you very much everybody um i'm adam smith and you've been listening to the dementia researcher podcast bye bye the dementia researcher podcast was brought to you by university college london with generous funding from the uk national institute for health research Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Alzheimer's Association, and Race Against Dementia. Please subscribe, leave us a review, and register on our website for full access to all our great resources. DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk